Welcome to the Stockman Grass Farmer Podcast, where our mission is to help create a healthy planet and people through profitable grass-based livestock production. Grass farming is a 24-7 job and you can't always get away, so we've put together this podcast so that you can listen while you work or whatever you're doing, but always on your schedule, whenever and wherever you want. Be sure to check out the episode notes for links to freebies and special offers. Join our email family and stay up to date on our happenings and like us on social media. This episode is from the Grass Engine Ag School. In this first part of three, Alan Williams discusses the basis of sound genetics. Good morning, everybody. It's a pleasure to meet each of you. Um, good to have you here. <clears throat> We're going to have a fairly intense two days. Uh, a lot of what I may present may surprise you, and you may wonder what in the heck does this have to do with genetics? But I assure you that everything that I present has an awful lot to do with genetics and ultimately what happens with the livestock, the plants, the microorganisms, entire microbiome on your farms, because all of it is genetically related, and all of it is epigenetically related. So we are gonna be talking a lot about epigenetics as well, because that's crucial. There is, you are all aware, there is nothing that is 100% heritable or 100% due to genetics. As a matter of fact, you know, even on the most highly heritable traits, you still have 50% or more of the entire influence on that individual, both its genotype and phenotype, influenced by environment, not direct genetics. So we have to always consider the influence of environment. We call that genotype by environment interaction, or G by E. We've got to always consider the influence of environment on the way that those genetics in any individual express themselves. Um, And that's one of the reasons we're going to dig deep a little later on in our sessions into epigenetics and, and what that really means. So... Just, just a little more background. Uh, I was born and raised on my family's farm in South Carolina. Uh, they've been there since 1840. And so I represent the sixth generation. Uh, we were a very diverse farm when I was growing up. Uh, we, had, uh, we were in the Piedmont of, of the Carolinas. So we had multiple species of livestock. We had beef cattle, dairy cattle, pigs, uh, chickens, ducks, geese, turkeys, uh, pheasants, guineas, and sheep, goats, horses. I'm not sure what we didn't have, to be honest with you, but, uh, but very diverse. We also, because of where we were located there in the Carolinas, we had a peach orchard, uh, apple orchard, pears, muscadines, and a number of other uh, fruit trees and so forth. So we produced a lot of fruit. We we did some cropping. Historically, 
they had done a lot of, of cotton production up until the 1930s in my family, and then when the Great Depression hit and cotton, mar cotton market crashed, then they transitioned heavily into livestock and other enterprises. And when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, that, that's what, what I experienced. Um, so we grew some crops, but we also had uh, quite a few acres of, of vegetable gardens. And we ran a general store that was located on one, at one of the edges of the farm. <clears throat> and so we, um, we sold much of what we produced on the farm through that general store. So I grew up with that type of experience, 80 plus percent of everything that we ate when I was growing up, we had produced right there on the farm. And we had four active generations uh, on the farm as I was growing up as well. Uh, including my great-grandmother who died in 1990 at 103 years of age. Uh, so uh, I remember when, when I was teaching at the university and particularly in the late 80s and the early 90s when all the, uh, the, the big emphasis on low cholesterol and low-fat to no-fat and all of these other things was, was really being hammered home to everybody, and uh, I, I actually taught the opposite to my students, and I teach the opposite today. Uh, we need good fats, we're gonna talk more about that and, and how nutrition plays a role in genetics and the expression of genetics, but, uh, but I taught my students that, you know, reliance on low-fat diets and statin drugs is a deadly combination. And I think over the last intervening decades, we have seen that to be absolutely the case. But one of the things that I told them was I said, yeah, my great-grandmother, and she died in 1990, and, and I said, uh, yeah, my great-grandmother ate uh, you know, bacon and pork and you know, beef and eggs and home-churned butter and everything else, whole milk raw milk, all of that from the farm every day of her life. And yeah, that cholesterol finally got her. It, it killed her at 103 years of age. So uh, <clears throat> yeah, we've, we, we've got a lot of misinformation out there, unfortunately, uh, in a lot of ways. And we're gonna talk a lot about that today. We've got a lot of misinformation about genetics out there today, and we're gonna talk a lot about that. Um, I fully intended growing up to go away to college, get my bachelor's degree, come back home to the family farm, and spend the rest of my life on the family farm. That was my dream, that was my desire. I was the oldest son, and that's what I wanted to do. Uh, went away to Clemson, and my family, that's where you went. You didn't even think about going anywhere else, or you would have been ostracized, but that's where I wanted to go. Uh, so went to Clemson, and uh, graduated with my bachelor's degree in animal science. I did go back home to the family farm. But I had this major professor who was very persistent and <clears throat> he would call me up at least once a month, every month, and make offers for me to come back to grad school. And for a year and a half, I kept refusing him and told him, no, I, I have no desire to do that. I'm happy on the farm. Well, one day he called me up and 
and he said, Alan, he said, I, I, I've got a deal for you, and if you turn me down this time, I promise I'll leave you alone and won't bother you again. And he said, if you'll come back to grad school, I'm going to send you down to the Caribbean to an island called St. Croix. You're going to work with a breed of cattle down there called the uh, Cinepo. And... Uh, do your research, collect your data, all that, come back up to Clemson, do your coursework, and, and get your master's. And, and at that stage of my life, I had never been any further than two hours away from home, either the, going to the east or the west, Myrtle Beach or the Blue Ridge Mountains. That was the sum total of my life experience in terms of travel. And so as a young 20-something, I'm sitting here thinking, wow, the Caribbean, you know, I've only, I'd only seen it on TV and read about it, and, you know, it's supposed to be this incredibly exotic place, so I just said, I had to do that, so, so I took him up on it, went down to St. Croix, experienced quite a bit of culture shock for a country boy from South Carolina, but it was a, a turning point in my life, um, so I came back up, got my master's, got taught into going on for a PhD at LSU, and, and then at that point I felt obligated to, uh, to go into academia. So I spent the next 15 years of my life in academia teaching and doing research and extension work. Uh, and at the end of the 15 years, I was a uh, tenured full professor, and for anybody that knows anything about academia, you're pretty much there for life at that point. They can't get rid of you unless you do something really, really dumb. Um, so I was fully vested, right? Had all the benefits you could ask for, everything else, uh, retirement and health and disability and on and on and on. But I started recognizing that there were just some things that, that were bothering me quite a bit about what we were doing in academia. And uh, I kept thinking back to growing up on my family's farm and all the things that we didn't need, that we didn't use. We never used any chemicals. We never used any uh, you know, vet meds, uh, feed supplements, anything like that. We, you know, we, we mainly relied on on what we were doing on the farm to, to produce our fertility and to do the things that we needed to get done. Animals basically died of old age. We didn't have a lot of sickness, a lot of death. And I got to wondering about everything that we were doing in our research <clears throat> and thinking about the fact that things were not getting better for farmers and ranchers. As a matter of fact, they were getting steadily worse. You know, their reliance on inputs of all types was steadily increasing. Their, um, their input costs were going up and up. Net margins were coming down dramatically. We had the crisis of the 80s, and we've had ongoing crisis. We've had the last five years in a row. We've had record numbers of bankruptcies filed by farmers and ranchers in the U.S. And in 2020, it's going to be yet another record for number of bankruptcies that are filed, and that's not going to end next year. So all of these things that we were doing in academia, I started to realize really what it amounted to 
was we, was, we were putting a Band-Aid on a gushing wound. That's what we were doing. We were, in all of our research, we were never really addressing the root cause of our problems. We were just simply addressing the symptoms and trying to treat the symptoms because after all, anytime we can address the symptoms, that's something else that can be developed by a company and sold to you as a farmer or rancher as an input, right? So that's really what was occurring. And I had to make, when I realized that, I had to make a very difficult decision. Do I stay in academia and then retire from that and then try to do something else or do I try to do something else that's more meaningful at that point in time? That was in the year 2000. Our youngest son, our youngest child had just been born uh, that year. And when I came home and told my wife that I was thinking about leaving the university, you know, with that every month steady paycheck, all the benefits, everything else, and we've got a new baby in the house, she looked at me and said, have you lost your ever-living mind? What are you thinking? But I, I, I made the decision and I left. Uh, all of my colleagues at the university basically said the same thing as my wife. Uh, they all told me I was an idiot, and why in the world would you leave the university? Um, <clears throat> they said, no way you can make a living, you know, if you leave here. And I thought, wow, we're the ones doing the research, we're the ones teaching, and you're saying, I can't make a living when I leave the university. And uh, how ironic, right? How ironic that my own colleagues would say that. And my department head, do you know what my department head told me? For, he, he, he asked me repeatedly not to leave, but when he saw that my mind was made up and I was leaving, he looked at me square in the eye and he said, Alan, he said, if you, you know if you leave the university, you'll never get hired again by another university. You'll be way too far behind on research and all of that. And I just looked at him and I said, well, and his name was Terry. I said, Terry, here's what I think. I think the university's about 20 years behind. That's what I think. And, uh, and I left. So 20 years later, here we are. We farm and ranch. We do it regeneratively. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit more over the next two days about what that means. Uh, we produce a multiplicity of, of species and products. Um, we consult very heavily. Over the intervening 20 years, I've been blessed to have been able to consult with people from 54 different countries so far. Uh, so we've, we've consulted in, in all of the U.S., every one of the U.S. states, all of the Canadian provinces, all across Mexico, Central and South America, and as I said, many other countries. So we routinely, pretty much on a daily basis, are working with people from, from all over the world and helping them on their farms and ranches and in their agricultural enterprises. Um, my partners and I formed a company called Understanding Ag, and that is, of course, that's on my shirt here, but that's our consulting company. We also formed a nonprofit called the Soil Health Academy. And the Soil Health Academy 
Uh, we teach multi-day, very intense schools, uh, much like this school, uh, except that we do half the day in the classroom and we do half the day in the field. So everybody gets some pretty intense field experience as well. And we teach them how to observe. Observation is critically important in what we do. Uh, so, so that's sort of synopsis of who I am and, and what we do now. Uh, we, again, we, we feel very blessed um, in what we've been able to, to do, the people that we've been able to work with around the world. The one thing that I'll tell you very definitively, folks, y'all are from different places. Okay? We've got Virginia, we've got Wyoming, we've got Dubai, you know, uh, you know, we've Illinois and Missouri. And so, you know, the one thing that I know for sure now is that there are no real differences, guys. Every one of you thinks, and I used to think the same thing, that you're in a very unique location or environment. And it's very different from any other place in the world. And <clears throat> oftentimes we use that as our excuse for why we do or don't do something in the decisions that we make. But the one thing that we have discovered is that soil is soil, microbes are microbes, plants are plants, and animals are animals, no matter where you are in this world, no matter where. And they all work very, very similarly. And if we apply the same basic principles, then they work, again, no matter where you are in this world. Now, how do we know that? Because, again, we've worked in 54 different countries now. And these principles have never failed to work. It's just simply applying them according to your context. So, <clears throat> In September, I turned 60, and I never realized what that milestone meant until I woke up on my birthday, and, and, and you know, then it really hit me when I looked in the mirror what turning 60 means. So. Hope you're enjoying the presentation, and we'll jump right back in, but I wanted to first remind you to visit the show notes for freebies, deals, and more. While you're there, don't forget to join our email family to stay up to date on all the current events. Now back to the show. All right. So adaptive stewardship is one of the things that we consider to be critically important for sound genetics. And I'm going to talk, I'm going to weave in and out through this adaptive stewardship theme over the course of the next two days so that we better understand why that's so critical in sound genetics. Nature will humble you, and if you refuse to be humbled, nature will defeat you. That's one, the other thing that we gotta realize, and I am by professional trade a geneticist and a reproductive physiologist. Did a ton of research in those areas, and I can tell you very pointedly because I am a geneticist and reproductive physiologist, some of the things we've tried to do, nature's humbling us on now. We, we push some things too far. 
and they are coming back to bite us in the butt in a multiplicity of ways. How many of you are familiar with Wendell Berry? Wendell's in his 80s now. He lives on his farm in Kentucky, but he's, he's a world-renowned farmer philosopher. He's written a lot of books, uh, has spoken literally all over the world during his lifetime. And I love this quote from Wendell in the New York Times 2018 op-ed where he said, agricultural choices must be made by these inescapable standards, the ecological health of the farm and the economic health of the farmer. And then finally, Masanabu here. Masanabu is sort of like the Wendell Berry of Japan. Uh, he's also in his 80s, but this quote from Masanabu is really, really pertinent to what we're going to be talking about over the next two days. An object seen in isolation from the whole is not the real thing. This is the core mistake we have been making in agricultural, medical, and nutritional research over the last several decades. We have tried to view objects in isolation. Our entire research model, the reductionist model, has been set up to view objects in isolation from the whole. And what this has caused is this has caused us to reach very erroneous conclusions, to make very wrong extrapolations, and it has cost us literally billions and billions and billions of dollars in agriculture because of this. So we are going to encourage you over the course of these next two days to not view objects in isolation, but to look at things much more holistically, to look at things from the standpoint of the whole system that we're working with. So the first way that we're going to do that is to look at what I call the historical ecological perspective. No matter how old you are in the room today, not a one of you has experienced anything but an already degraded resource. There's nobody living today on the face of this earth that has ever seen or experienced a fully functional ecosystem. We don't have any of those anymore. Okay. So in order to understand what you can build and what things can be like wherever you are, wherever you farm, wherever you ranch, you've got to start looking much further back than your lifetime, than your parents' or your grandparents' lifetime. You have to look back in almost all of North America at least 400 to 500 years to get a real picture of what your landscape used to be and what the potential can be yet again if we just apply the right principles and practices. So that's what we call the historical ecological perspective. And when we talk about that, I'm gonna use the Southeast as an example. So last week, we did our uh, academy, Soil Health Academy, at BDA Farm. 
in south central Alabama. Now, if we look at the southeast, what we were taught the southeast was like is very wrong from what the southeast really was, pre-European settlement. For instance, the southeast was primarily composed of four types of ecosystems. Prairie, yes, there was a ton of prairie in the southeast, a whole bunch of it. And it was native North American tall grass prairie. The same species that you saw growing in Missouri, in Kansas, in Oklahoma, in Nebraska, and other places were growing in the southeast. Little blue stem, big blue stem, Indian grass, on, on and on and on. Okay? So they all existed there. Illinois, same species there that used to exist in Illinois, in the native tall grass prairie. And what we also have to realize is that the major ruminant species like bison and elk and antelope and deer once existed coast to coast. You know, in today's world, we all grew up thinking that bison were just a Western Plains animal, that elk are a Rocky Mountain animal, you know, that antelope are a Western Plains animal, and you know, only deer existed coast to coast. Well, that's not the case. All of those ruminants existed from the Atlantic to the Pacific, from south of the Arctic Circle, down to the Gulf. Every one of them. And we had multiple subspecies. The only bison species that we have existing today in North America is the bison, 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 or the plain, plains bison. Okay, that's it. And the only reason we have those is because Teddy Roosevelt stepped in, you know, to, to, to save the remnant of under 2,000 that was left. But we had a woodland bison, we had a savanna bison, uh, and, and a number of other species that once existed. As a matter of fact, we have records, historical records, from when the last bison were either killed or spotted in every south, current southeastern state. And most of those, the last bison spotted in the southeast was in 1825. That was the last one. Uh, most of them were gone, you know, by the mid-1700s, to be honest with you. By the late 1700s, almost all elk had disappeared from the eastern portion of the U.S. So... Again, historical ecological perspective is critically important. Um, so prairie, the second type of ecosystem in the southeast, was savanna. We didn't have these dense, thick, choked woodlands that we see today. We think of woods today, when you look at the southeastern U.S., we think that was normal. That's what it looked like you know, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago. No, not at all. As a matter of fact, we had immense virgin timber, and, but up underneath that, it was very open. It was so open that it was easy for wagon trains to pass through these savannas, these woods, this forest. That's what the forest was at that point in time. But it was very, very open. Entire wagon trains could pass through. And you know, one of the earliest exploration parties was Hernando de Soto. Uh, in the 1500s, and we know where they landed in that initial exploration party on the Gulf Coast. 
We know where they traveled as they made their loop through the southeast, and we know where they were each day of that exploration. So we know how rapidly they traveled. And when DeSoto landed, he had more than 600 men, many of them on horseback, supply wagons, and a herd of more than 500 pigs. Now, those pigs are where we get all our feral pigs in the U.S. today. So we can thank DeSoto and other, other Spanish explorers for all of our wild pig problem because they started going feral and so forth, and, and that's hence all of our pig problem. But um, if DeSoto, in this very large party that he traveled with, had hit the Gulf Coast and encountered the dense, choked woodland that we see today, they would have turned around, got on their ships, gone back to Spain and said, this is an impenetrable wilderness and we don't want anything to do with it. But they were able to travel very easily with that large of a party and all of that support because it was plains or prairies and savannas, open wooded savannas. So again, we've got to retrain ourselves on what we think. And as a matter of fact, in the Southeast, we had the greatest number of plant species in our prairies, more than the Midwestern prairies. We had more plant species than the Midwestern prairies down here. Now let me ask you a question, guys. We're very different today. In terms of diversity of species out there, where do we compare today versus where we were 500 and 1,000 years ago? Anywhere in the U.S., anywhere in the U.S. Where do you think we are today? Worse? Yeah. A little bit worse? A lot worse? A lot worse, right? How do you think that impacts genetics and epigenetics? Do you think it has any influence on it whatsoever? Yes. It has a profound influence on it. Huge, huge. So when we think about that, guys, and the lack of diversity that we have today and the level of soil degradation that we have today, that is profoundly impacting the genetics that we have today and the epigenetics that we have today. So again, when you're thinking, where in the heck is he going with, why is he talking about historical ecological perspective? This is a genetics workshop. Well, this has everything to do with the genetics and expression of those genetics today and what we are experiencing in our livestock and our crops and everything else that exists out there. So again, I was taught in elementary school that the eastern U.S. before the European settlers was so densely wooded that a squirrel could jump in a tree at the Atlantic and not touch ground again until it hit the Mississippi River. But once again, that's not true, okay? A very, very false concept of what this landscape will look like. The Western landscape. Do you know that the Western landscape used to be incredibly well watered? Uh, there were beaver, otter, 
all types of water animals that existed. Uh, moose were very widespread. Uh, it, it, it's unbelievable how well watered the western landscape used to be. But by the time, when did your family get out there? In the mid, uh, oh, 1875. Okay. So unfortunately, by the time they got there in 1875, that entire landscape had already had 200 plus years of degradation. Now they, they certainly didn't think that when they first saw it because they had never seen it before and they thought that's what it was, right? And they thought it was pretty good at that point. But the truth is it was only a shadow of what it would have been 200 years prior to that. Why? What had happened prior even to in many of those areas, even prior to the 1800s and certainly by the 1850s, what had happened? What, what was going on in that part of the world prior to the 1850s? Native Americans. Okay, we well have Native Americans, but who else was there and what were they doing? Gold rush, pioneers. Okay, well you had the gold rush, but what else? Trappers. Okay, there you go, the fur trappers. And what were the fur trappers predominantly after? Beaver. Beaver. Okay. And how did the Native American were the Native Americans complicit in that as well? Yeah. They traded with them quite a bit. Okay. So even the Native Americans became a little greedy, right? And they were not, um, you know, uncompliant here. They, they were complicit in, in, what, in all, of, all that happened. And so the trappers are the ones, unfortunately, that started the big downturn. And that caused the significant loss of water and water cycle in the Western US. And we've got a client north of Grand Junction, Colorado has a half million acre ranch there. When you look at the history there, and they, they comprise two different valleys in between ranges. And when you look at when Cortez, Spanish explorer came through that region, when they described what they saw, when they first stuck their heads over those ridges into those valleys there, in the Grand, north of Grand Junction, they described a scene that is far, far, far different than what we see today there. Today, it's pretty much desert, you know, very dry, very, very dry. And, and you know, growth of anything is sparse. But yet, what they described was that in the valleys, there was grass higher than a horse's head and so thick that you could not navigate your way through it. As a matter of fact, they followed the trails that were up on the mesas and the benches because those were the same trails that the Native Americans had made and followed. Because again, the dense, thick grasses that grew in the valleys. And they talked about how well watered those valleys were. Moose were abounding everywhere. Beaver, river otter, all of those types of things were just absolutely everywhere. And folks, this was just, uh, you know, this wasn't that long ago.
okay? And so what happened was that when the first settlers from the east moved into that area, then, you know, the, the ranchers saw enormous opportunity because of all of this grass. In these valleys, they were shoving in the 1800s 10,000 head of cattle up each valley. There was plenty of water, plenty of grass, 10,000 head up each valley. Do you know how many head can be sustained by either of those valleys today? About 300. 300. Okay, so think about that. They went from 10,000 head in the 1800s to 300. So what happened in the intervening years? Well, the beaver and otter had already been trapped out, so that was gone. That started the decline of the water cycle. Then these guys, um, once the ranchers sort of mowed that grass down <clears throat> with their cattle, the sodbusters saw it the farmers, and the sodbusters said, wow, this is great for farming, but it's still too much water. So what did the sodbusters do? What was the first thing they did to remove water? They dug ditches, okay? That's the only option you had in those days, right? So they dug ditches to, to drain these valleys. Most of these ditches at that time were about that wide and about that deep. Okay, that they dug. <clears throat> dug them by mule and with pans, pans with mules. Well, today, you have any idea how big those ditches are? A lot of them are the same. Some of them are larger. Many of these ditches today are now uh, 100 foot across and 30 to 40 foot deep through erosion, right? Erosion. And as a matter of fact, as uh, recently as the 1920s, some of these ditches that you can't even begin to think about jumping across today, <clears throat> in the 1920s, we have accounts where men could just easily step across them, okay? So we have dramatically altered the landscape. And, and today, you can't farm it without what? Irrigation, right? You're heavily dependent on irrigation. So folks, that's historical ecological perspective. And, and it really matters, and it matters genetically, okay, because it has altered our genetics. I love this quote by William Clark to give us additional perspective on that. Out of the Lewis and Clark, exploration. This was in, on July the 4th, 1804. Now, William Clark was a magnificent writer, but a horrible speller. So th this is his own spelling out of his, his diary. But on July the 4th, they were near Donovan County, Kansas, and he said, the plains of this country are covered with elite green grass, well calculated for the sweetest and most nourishing hay, interspersed with copses of trees, spreading their lofty branches over pools, springs, or brooks of fine water. Groups of shrubs covered with the most delicious fruit are to be seen in every direction. And nature appears to have exerted herself 
to beautify the scenery by the variety of flowers, delicately and highly flavored rising above the grass, which strikes and perfumes the sensation and amuses the mind. And then he goes on to say, in, in a country situated far removed from the civilized world, to be enjoyed by nothing but the buffalo, elk, deer, and bear, in which it abounds, and savage Indians. So look at the scene he described and think about that. This was in 1804. When was William Clark born and where? Does anybody know? In the 1770s in Virginia. Okay. He had to go all the way out to eastern Kansas in 1804 to experience a scene like this. In other words, the entire eastern U.S. by 1804 had become so devoid of what he saw there that this totally, totally blew his mind by 1804. And he talks about the savage Indians, but I'm going to ask who were the savages. <laughs> Looks to me like the Indians were enjoying an Eden yeah, they, they, they had a great life, an absolutely fabulous life. And uh, yeah, so again, who were the savages here? But, uh, and we, we taught an academy in June out in New Mexico. This was on the host ranch. Um, but I want to show you this video. This is four different species of livestock, wild ruminants, all, uh, all on the same ranch, running together. Okay, so we have elk, antelope, mule deer, whitetail deer, all running together. But what keystone species is missing from that group? The bison, exactly, the bison. So my point here, guys, is this. The way that we've been taught to envision things, that the bison just ran in large herds by themselves, you know, or the antelope just by themselves, was not true at all. You know, it was much more like the American Serengeti, where all of these species were intertwined with each other, and many more species as well, bird species and so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, that's what we're seeing return again to a certain extent. And here's some of the bird species, some wild turkeys there on the CS Ranch. Uh, but we're starting to see as we get things right again, we're starting to see a return of many different species all existing together again. Now, I'm going to ask you who said this and when, but a few more years of increased sterility will drive the inhabitants of the Atlantic states westward for support, whereas if they were taught how to improve the old soil and instead of going in pursuit of the new and productive soil, they will make these acres, which now scarcely yield them anything, turn out beneficial to themselves. Who said it? Yeah. George Washington, 1796. We're a brand new country. And here he was talking about we'd already farmed out the Atlantic states. We'd already so severely degraded our soils by the time we were a brand new country that 
people were having to move west to find new soils to plow under and repeat the same process of degradation. And we have continued to do that over and over over the last, last two centuries. <clears throat> and then this, um, this excerpt from Wayne Angus Ferris, he was uh, explored the Rockies from 1830 to 1835. And he describes, uh, you know, it talks about uh, bison and poor flesh were the worst diet imaginable. But as they became fat, okay, remember we talked about fat, okay, we grew strong and hardy, and now not one of us is but ready to insist that no other kind of meat can compare with that of the female bison in good condition. They didn't want lean meat, okay, like we're taught to eat today, okay, they didn't want lean meat, they wanted the fat. And with it, we require no seasoning. They can boil, roast, fry it, or cook it as they please and live upon it solely without bread or vegetables of any kind. Okay, we never tire of it or disrelish it. Now why? Why was that? Why could the Native Americans, why could these early explorers and others live on this high-fat, animal protein only diet and thrive. Why? Wow. They're eating such a diverse forage that they had a lot of nutrients in within the meat, isn't it? Bingo. Yeah, so yes, they they had a very, very diverse array of forages. Uh, much more highly biologically active soils with a greater organic matter and carbon content. Nutrient cycling was far better at that time. Water cycling was far better at that time. So that allowed these bison and anything else they hunted and killed for their food to be much more nutrient dense in their content. And now, Native Americans and these early explorers, when they made a kill, what was the first thing they, first two things they would eat off of any carcass? First two things. First two things they would eat off of any carcass. Okay, organ meats and fat. Okay? They would go after the organ meats and fat first. The leanest portions of the carcass they never would even eat. They would just feed those to their dogs. So they wouldn't even eat that. They would throw them to the dogs and the scavengers. So they ate the organ meats and the fattiest parts of the carcass. All right. I hope you enjoyed this presentation. Well, check out the episode notes. And always remember the advice from cows and be outstanding in your field. See you next time. <laughs>